This morning I want to start reading at verse 50 of Luke chapter 23. And of course we're coming to, we've come to the end of Jesus' life. He's been crucified and he's suffered in our place on the cross. And Luke picks up his narrative with his burial. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned to prepare spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week at early dawn they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with, whom, with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word to us this morning. Well, when my uh, youngest son, Harrison, uh, was in elementary school, Uh, he received a letter from someone who was certainly one of his school friends. It was during the summertime. Uh, He received this letter, but he could not make sense of the letter because whoever wrote the letter did not sign his or her name or provide a return address. It was obviously written from camp, but Harrison had many uh, friends who were at camp, so he had no clue what the letter was all about or who it was from or anything. Now, when you read something someone has written, uh, but you do not know anything about them or why they wrote what they did, uh, you have a hard time understanding the message that they're trying to convey. And this is true of the Bible. It is, of course, God's word, but he used men in, who lived in particular contexts to write his word, to write what he wanted us to know. And so to fully grasp the meaning Uh, of what the scriptures say to us, we need to know the context and the purpose of the author. Now Luke uh, is the, we believe, the author of this gospel that we're reading from today. Uh, And 
he was one of the associates of Paul uh, when Paul was on his missionary journeys. He wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts. It's two parts of, a, of, a, of an ongoing story telling us all that Jesus did and taught. And Luke tells us in the first few verses in chapter 1 of this gospel exactly what his purpose was in writing it. It says there, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So Luke is writing to this person named Theophilus so that he may have certainty concerning the things that he had been taught. Now the name Theophilus, it means friend of God. That's the literal translation of that name. So it is possible that he's not writing to one individual, but he's writing to any person who would consider themselves to be a friend of God. Now, you're here in church, and I assume that you would uh, aspire to be a friend of God, so you can look at this letter and say, well, I'm a Theophilus too. This letter's written to you, who would desire to be a friend of God. Now, the important part of what Luke says here is in verse 4, where he tells us, he gives us the reason why he wrote it, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Now, let me point a couple of things here. First, notice that Theophilus has already been taught these things. He, he's already learned all about what Jesus did and, and what Jesus taught. The reason for this gospel is not to tell him things he'd never heard before, though that's true maybe of some of us. But they were written for Theophilus to have certainty about the things that he had already been taught, to reaffirm those things that he'd already been taught. Now I assume the majority of you here have at least some understanding of the resurrection of Jesus and its importance in Christianity. Like Theophilus, you've been taught these things. Well, Luke is giving us his account for further confirmation of these matters. Now, the second thing to notice here is that Luke is writing so that we will have certainty, certainty concerning those things that we have been taught. Now, in our case today, in the part that we've read, uh, we want to have certainty, or the goal Luke has for us is to have certainty concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because that's what he's telling us about here in Luke 24. Now that word certainty in the original language needs some nuancing. Uh, when we think of certainty, sometimes we think of, uh, think of it from a subjective way. Uh, I have a feeling about something, I'm certain about something. But that's not what this word means. The word certainty in the original language is the word knowledge with a prefix added to it. Uh, the prefix is epi. So the word is epigonosco for all you uh, Greek uh, scholars out there. But the word means uh, epi, which is tacked on to knowledge, means over or above or upon. So what the word means is knowledge upon something or above something or over knowledge. 
Knowledge built on the foundation of evidence. That's what he means here. Now, it's the same uh, structure that you have for the word in Scripture, lust. The word for lust is the word desire with the prefix epi on it. It means over-desire or desire that is above and beyond, just regular desire. That's lust, over-desire. So this is over-knowledge or knowledge upon something. It means to acquire information in a more exact form. And it's used in legal contexts and refers to careful investigation and interrogation and gathering knowledge and, and basing your understanding of a situation upon facts. That's what Luke is after here. He wants us to have certainty. He wants us to see the facts from eyewitnesses, he tells us. That's how he's compiled his gospel. The word here is more objective. It's not how we feel, the certainty that we might feel. Of course, that hopefully is a result. But this is objective. It is, it is uh, proof uh, or evidence that something is certain. Now, let me illustrate this. Someone might give you a, uh, a verbal promise, a verbal agreement, that they'll buy your house for, say, $100,000. And maybe you feel certain that it will happen. And maybe it will happen. But if someone signs a legal contract and gives money as a down payment, there you have some evidence that they're actually going to buy your house. It's more certain than just a verbal agreement. So... Luke is not just giving us knowledge. He wants us to see the evidence. He wants to have us to have certainty based on the facts that he's drawn from other people. Luke isn't just giving us his word about these matters, so we will feel a level of certainty about it. He is giving us proof, so we will know these things are true. He tells us in the first couple of verses there that he has checked with eyewitnesses, people who, who were there, people who have seen it eyewitnesses of the events, and other sources to help him complete his gospel. And perhaps he was inspired by the Apostle Paul. Remember, he traveled with Paul. And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, when he's writing to this church there in Corinth, Paul writes, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So Paul, in essence, is saying here, look, I'm telling you, I've told you about the gospel, I've told you about all that Jesus did in his life and death and resurrection, and, uh, and if you don't believe me, well, here's over 500 people, many of whom are still alive, and you can go ask them as well. Now, the letter to 1 Corinthians was written before the Gospel of Luke. And remember, Luke traveled with Paul. So perhaps Luke took up that challenge and said, you know, I'm going to go talk to those eyewitnesses. And he names people. You'll notice he named several women in the resurrection account. He went and spoke to these people and got his, his gospel together. He was a scientist. He was a doctor. And so he methodically went and found out all this evidence. He investigated it for himself so that we too could have certainty about these things. 
Now, as we look at Luke's account of the resurrection, let's think about that certainty that he's trying to get us to have. Now, first of all, we have a tendency towards uncertainty, just like the disciples and the women at the tomb. Now, think about what Luke is asking us to believe here, that Jesus was crucified on a cross, and he states that he breathed his last. He died on the cross on a Friday afternoon. Then he was placed in a tomb, wrapped in linen cloths, placed in a tomb with a stone rolled in front of it. And on Sunday morning, when the women showed up to complete uh, the, the uh, putting the spices on the body, uh, the body was not there. The body was not in the tomb. But then Jesus, that same day, appears to the disciples alive. He speaks to them and he eats with them. So he's not a ghost. Ghosts don't eat fish. And you see that recorded in the latter part of the chapter, chapter 24. So he speaks with them, he eats with them. Jesus was dead, Luke says. Now he's alive, and he's gotten this from eyewitnesses. Now, some people try to explain this away in various ways. Some people think, well, these people lived, lived uh, back in the old days before science, and, and they explain things with myths and legends and try to find uh, supernatural explanations for everything. So we can dismiss what they're saying because they weren't sophisticated like we are. They weren't scientific like we are. And they're willing to accept this non-scientific explanation. Well, if, if you look at the passage, if they were ready to believe in a resurrection, if it was something that was part of their experience, something that they were expecting, they wouldn't have reacted like they did. You look at the, the first witnesses, the women. They went to the tomb. Jesus had already told them multiple times that he was going to die and that he was going to rise again. But when they got to the tomb and they saw it was empty, they were perplexed. They were, what, what's going on here? They were at a loss. That's what the word means. Now, everybody's been perplexed before. I was perplexed this week. I've had uh, one of our cars broke down that uh, one of our children is driving, and uh, it, it, the repairs are so expensive, it's more than the car's worth, and I'm sitting there going, I don't know what to do. I don't know if I should buy a new car or if I should pay to have that one repaired, or I don't know what to do. I was completely perplexed. What to do next? I have no clue. That's where these women were. They didn't know what to do next. They didn't know what was going on. They, they were at a loss of what they were witnessing. They see the empty tomb, and their minds immediately begin to search for a rational explanation, and they have one. If they were expecting a resurrection, or if it was something in the norm, then they wouldn't have been perplexed. And again, when they go and tell the disciples after the angel explains these things to them, they go and they tell the disciples, and what do the disciples say? Well, it's just an idle tale. Uh, this, is, this, is just, uh, this is just some gossip or something that they're saying. And they did not believe it. That's what it says. Even though Jesus had predicted his resurrection, they did not grasp what Jesus is saying when he said it. And regarding the resurrection, they probably thought he meant 
being raised from the dead at the last day. You remember when uh, Jesus went to uh, Mary and Martha when Lazarus died? And, and Jesus said to Martha, and I think she was probably typical of the other disciples, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So when Jesus mentioned the resurrection, they were probably thinking, you know, on the last day. Not immediately, not three days later. So they were perplexed. So it's not that they were unsophisticated. They had as much trouble believing in the resurrection as anybody does. It's part of our DNA as humans. We have trouble believing these miraculous, wonderful things. Well, some people try to explain it away that, in that manner, but that doesn't add up. Sometimes people try to explain it away by saying, oh, these are just made-up stories. Uh, the disciples made, it, made this all up, and uh, they've spread these rumors, spread this, these stories, and, and they've taken hold, and everyone has bought into it. Well, if you're making stories up, uh, about a Messiah who dies and is raised from the dead, you would never write it like this. It's so unflattering to his followers. Nobody would believe in Jesus. Nobody would believe what he said. And the first witnesses, well, they were women. And I'm not being uh, sexist here, but in Roman times, women were not allowed to testify in court because they were not considered to be reliable witnesses. And that, I know that's terrible, but that's Roman times. But, that's, but if you were trying to convince a Roman audience or the, a first century audience, your first witnesses, and if you're making it up, you wouldn't choose the women to be the first witnesses. You would choose some reliable people, at least reliable in their minds. I completely believe the women honestly so you can go through all the stories in the in the scriptures in in the uh, the appearance of Jesus on the road to Emmaus again those two fellows that encountered Jesus on the road they didn't they didn't believe they didn't remember what Jesus had said they were having trouble believing it and then when the, he appears to the disciples uh, again they struggled to believe and they even though he's there he still don't believe it and we'll look at that in a moment Chuck Colson, you know, we've had, of course, uh, all the political scandals in our day. Uh, and Watergate gets mentioned every so often compared to the, some of the things that are going on now. Well, out of Watergate, Chuck Colson, who was one of the men who was arrested in the Watergate scandal, um, through his time in prison, he became a Christian. And he wrote about the resurrection. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles, 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Well, that's a little food for thought. So these are not made-up stories. These were 
This was an event that these men were willing to die for and did. Well, sometimes people try to explain it away that it's, uh, it's just a... These, these, these stories are meant to be taken figuratively, not a literal, physical uh, resurrection, but a metaphorical resurrection. And, and people want to divorce Christianity from history. There's a, there's a, a liberal movement that uh, is doing that. They've gone through the scriptures and, you know, in one way or another decide what's uh, historical and what's not, and they pretty much cut everything out of any substance whatsoever. Well, you'll notice here in, in Luke's recording of all that he's investigated, he's like Joe Friday in, uh, in Dragnet, that old show from the 60s. Uh, you know, F- Officer Friday, uh, you know, when he would go to a crime scene and start his investigation, er, er, you know, these people would start talking to him, and he would always say, and his byline was, just the facts. Just give me the facts. Just the facts, ma'am. Don't want any interpretation of those facts. Just give me the facts. Well, that's what Luke is doing here. You know, if you compare his accounts to the others, it's pretty bare bone. It's more like an outline. He's just giving us the facts. Perhaps it's just those things that he was able to confirm with eyewitnesses and other sources. So Luke is sharing his facts, not the interpretation of those facts, because what he's sharing is the gospel. It's the good news. It's, it's a record of events that happened in history. And if you say it's all figurative and it didn't really happen, then you've got no gospel. There's no good news. This, was, this has been a battle for over a century now in our culture. In the early 20s, 1920s, uh, J. Gresham Machen, great uh, theologian, He says this, the separation of Christianity from history has been a great concern of modern theology. It has been an inspiring attempt, but it has been a failure. Give up history, and you can retain some things. You can retain a belief in God, but philosophical theism has never been a powerful force in the world. You can retain a lofty ethical ideal, but be perfectly clear about one point. You can never retain a gospel. For gospel means good news, tidings, information about something that has happened. In other words, it means history. A gospel independent of history is simply a contradiction in terms. So Luke here is giving us history, and he's confirming that history. And it is what Jesus did in time and space. He entered our human existence 2,000 years ago, and he did something for sinners such as we are. The women at the tomb and the other followers of Jesus did not grasp the events, the history that had happened before their very eyes, nor did they understand its significance. And the question is, do you? Do you look at the history here and what Jesus has done and the impact that he's made in the world since then? Do you understand the significance of what has happened with Jesus? Because if there's no resurrection, as Paul says, then it's futile. You can throw Christianity out the door. This is the most important part of Christianity. Because if there's no resurrection, there's no salvation. It doesn't matter. What Christ did on the cross is just another man dying. 
But if there is a resurrection, then it matters more than anything else in the world. In reference to Jesus, it means that Jesus is the Son of God. He is who he says he was. He was declared, Paul says in Romans 1, to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. It also points to the fact that he was a sinless sacrifice. He died on the cross in our place. He, he sacrificed himself. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And because he was sinless, death had no claim on him. He cannot be held in the grave. Why do we die? We die because, because of sin. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit in the Garden of Eden... Sin entered the world and with it, death. If they would have not eaten that tree of knowledge of good and evil, they would have gone on living forever. But we die because of sin. We're tainted with sin. Jesus was not. He lived his entire life, tempted in every way as we are, but without sin. And when he died, death had no claim on him because he was sinless. And now, as we read in the, the opening, he holds the, the keys to death in Hades. Well, I read a funny meme a little while ago. It said, uh, I wish that Adam and Eve were Cajuns because then they would have ignored the fruit and eaten the snake. <laughs> but that's not the way it happened. And if you're a Cajun, I apologize. So in reference to Christ, it confirms who he was and the work that he did was, was true and real and reached its purpose. And in reference to believers, Paul says he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He was raised for our justification. We can be right with God because his, he died and rose again. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, 1 Corinthians 15. Because he died and rose again, those who put their faith in him know that they will have eternal life. And Peter said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. Now, very briefly, you'll see here how can we be convinced? How, how can we have this certainty? And what you see here repeatedly is Jesus turning back to the scriptures and the angels as well. What did the angels tell the women when they were perplexed? He says, don't you remember? Don't you remember what he said? He said he was going to die. He said he was going to rise again. He did it just as he said. And then when Jesus encounters the two men on the road to Emmaus, what does he do? He takes them back to the Scriptures. He takes them to the Scriptures and says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. And then later he appears to all the disciples. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Because even then, he's standing in the room eating fish, and they still are doubting. And it says, While they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? 
And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Wouldn't we love to be in on a Bible study led by Jesus? That'd be perfect, amazing. And that's what they got. But see, we we must look to the Word and trust the Word. Now I want to make a clarification real quick. Our faith, the object of our faith is not the Scriptures. The object of our faith is Christ. The Scriptures testify to us about Christ. They point us to Christ. And as Jesus said, all the way from Genesis to Revelation, it's not just the New Testament. It's all the law, it's the prophets, it's the Psalms, it's everything is pointing us to Jesus Christ and what he did, what he was going to do, what was prophesied about him to do, and what he did in his life, death, and resurrection. These are the facts. There is evidence here for us. And if we don't put our faith in it, we're lost. We have no hope. This is something that will sustain you through your life and on into eternity. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't believe it or if you've never really explored the significance of it, turn to to the Word. Look to the Scriptures. Ask Jesus to do what he did for the disciples to help them understand what the Scriptures say concerning himself. Cry out to the Lord. Anyone who calls upon the Lord will be saved. And as Paul said in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you that we can come to you in prayer. And Lord, we do ask that you would help us to have a deeper understanding of these things and a greater faith in what is written here, a greater faith in you, because that's what it's all about, is you, uh, Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to put our faith in Christ and not in our own works, not in our own uh, abilities, not in our own morality or goodness, but in you and you alone. Lord, we pray that we would... Uh, we would have a deeper repentance for our sins and a greater trust in your finished work on the cross and uh, through the grave and ascend it to heaven. May we follow where you, our exalted head, has gone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.